Good morning. The reading this morning is from Facing the Lion, Being the Lion. It's by Mark Nepo. And there's a quote at the beginning from Donna Markov. I need to take a sacred pause as if I were a sun-warmed rock in the center of a rushing river. Archbishop Desmond Tutu speaks of how omnipotent God we worship chooses to be impotent in the world unless God's work is manifest through the collaboration of human beings. In this, God entrusts the world to us. And so the miracle rests with us and is seldom spectacular, but more the work of humble people choosing to give what they have. By doing so, we become vehicles of the divine. Not in being a spokesperson for the mind of God, no one can claim that, but more in being a conduit of the vitality that keeps everything alive. In this way, the Archbishop says, you may have the chance to wipe tears from the eyes of someone who will then know that they matter and they are loved. This, he said, is godly work. This brings to mind the story of Jeremy, who was a likable but odd boy, somewhat of a loner, His parents found it difficult to teach him responsibility. He was forever losing things. He'd come home having misplaced a new sweater or a knapsack. His parents tried to discipline him so he would value things, but nothing seemed to work. Once he came home having lost his sneakers, he walked into the house barefoot and went to his room. When scolded, he shrugged said he was sorry and that he would try harder to keep track of his belongings. Tragically, Jeremy died in an auto accident in his junior year. It was devastating. When his parents attended the school memorial, they were stunned to see hundreds of students show up. One after another spoke of how kind and generous Jeremy was, of how he was always helping others. One boy told how his single mother couldn't afford to buy him shoes and how Jeremy pulled him aside, unlaced his sneakers, and gave them to him. A girl told of how she didn't have a jacket in winter and how Jeremy, seeing her shiver, gave her his sweater. On and on, the students stepped forward to pay tribute to this young, quiet conductor of kindness who gave everything away. His parents were undone. The students suffered to learn of each other. Jeremy, at such a long, young age, was an anonymous seed. In some strange way, everyone who'd ever given anything to Jeremy now shared a special relationship. They looked around at each other, distant relatives with a quiet eagerness to know each other better. And now please welcome me as our speaker this morning has done so much with so little for so long, he is absolutely certain he can do anything starting with nothing but a new idea. Please join me in welcoming the spiritual director of the largest and most delicious New Thought community in Canada, our own Reverend Patrick Cameron. Good morning. Beautiful day in the neighborhood. All right. So, I'm going to invite you to 
sing a song with me and we'll do it while we move into our prayer. If you'd like to stand up and do that, that would be wonderful. If you'd like to stay seated, of course, do that as well. If you'd like to do both, I'd love to see that as a matter of fact. All right. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear for oh, spirit one spirit is in this very room in this very room in this very room and so what I invite you to know with me in this moment, one power, one life. That life is perfect. That life is my life in this moment. And speaking in the I am, know that I offer these words to you as well. And so in that recognition, in that remembering to remember who I am and whose I am, I am shifted and changed. I open myself in this moment to whatever is seeking expression, that is important for me to be aware of, whatever it may be, that conversation that continues. And it shows up in many ways, through friends, through insight, through inspiration, through reading the side of a, a passing vehicle, whatever it may be, all of it is there to inform and instruct and to allow each and every one of us to thrive and to move into that, that balance and harmony, that vibration of the Most High as often as necessary, to live from that source. And so I just give thanks this day for this reminder, for this intentional community. We are agents of change on this planet at this time. And it begins with our conscious awareness, our consciousness, our waking up and staying awake. For this, I am grateful. I'm grateful for this community, all of my teachers who have been with me, who are with me now and have yet to show up, I give thanks. All of the ways that I can be of service to others, I give thanks. I release these words knowing that in the simple recognition of the one life and claiming it as my own, I have been shifted and changed and everything that is good and very good, pressed down and overflowing, is part of my experience now. For this I give thanks and I invite you to say with me, and so it is. Please be seated. Thank you. Get my waves in with Julie because she'll be waving at me and then telling me I didn't wave at her earlier, so there... There we go. You, are we good? Ah, oh, sweet. We aim to please. Anyway, so we're here today having a discussion about, in the, uh, first of all, are, are the musicians just stepping up their game or what? Man, they're just doing an awesome job, wherever they are. We love you guys. <clears throat> they're outside smoking cigarettes together or something. <laughs> They've already heard this talk. It's not that they're not interested. They've already heard it, although I'm doing a whole different talk, but they don't know that, so that'll just keep them on their toes, and they'll say, darn, I'll have to buy the CD. Yeah, you will. So we're talking about empathy. I've been using Daniel Pink's book, A Whole New Mind. In this chapter, it's about the six senses he talks about that are involved with high touch, high concept. And so it's a wonderful book. It's a very simple read as, as well. 
But it's a wonderful insight into what's happening, the shifts and changes, and how consciousness is outpicturing on our planet. So empathy allows us to become more aware of our surroundings and of others. It's that connection. The story of Jeremy, did did that connect with anybody, the reading today? Young man, the parents are upset because he's losing stuff. It turns out he's sharing with... I mean, for me, it's just a, a wonderful story about how, you know, we can assume something about someone and yet they've got a different agenda and there's a different thing happening and so that surprise sort of cracks us open. And that's empathy. We can identify with it. Daniel Pink in the book talks about, he, he describes an evening where he was, didn't get much sleep and so he's yawning. And he, he gets this, this yawning thing going. And if you start to read about the yawning that he's talking about, there's a whole study that you're much more empathetic if you yawn when someone else yawns. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So it's just very interesting how we operate. And actually, women, believe it or not, guys, are much better at empathy than we are. Can you believe that? <laughs> Go figure. And it's also about empathy and so how we communicate. And there's, one of the things that's fascinating about this is that so much of communication is nonverbal. And that when mothers, there's a mother in the back, Tara, that is nursing her baby right now. And in the book, it says that mothers hold the babies, typically, the majority of mothers hold the baby with the head on the left. Because when they look to the left, it activates the right side of the brain, which is present moment awareness, which is perceiving the needs of the child, because the child cannot, doesn't have yet language yet. But isn't it interesting how instinctually we just know that, that, you know, that we hold the baby there. So I told her, I said, I'm going to talk about you today when she was back there nursing her baby. But it's fascinating to know that that's just something neurolinguistically we're just drawn to. And it's because we want to use the, le- the right side of the brain to, be- to perceive the, con- the uh, conversation. So, and, and, and it happens all the time. It's happening all the time in relationships. So much of the communication is nonverbal. We have a, a, a ritual at our house that when, whenever we're all there, Davis and Max and Laura and myself, and we love Jeopardy. Anybody here ever watch Jeopardy? It used to be, Price is Right used to be my show, but I had to give it up because it was just, uh, Bob Barker retired and it just lost its appeal for me. Because I always felt like Bob was like God. You know, you just, you know, you, you match up, you get the prize, you know. And so what modern day form of God, there's Bob Barker. I love Bob. But anyway, and the, the guys used to tease me because I actually used to tape the Price is Right. And I just, I just loved it because it was a joyful experience. People were winning stuff. I mean, it's not about the stuff, it's about the joy. That's what I loved about it. Anyway, so we go to, we've moved to Jeopardy. And one day, Max doesn't even know this story, but one day, I go home early because we, we got this, this contest. You know, we have to buzz in, and there's always, we don't have buzzers, so everybody's arguing. I buzzed in first, and then I got the answer. So anyway, and we keep, sort of keep track. And uh, I have to admit that I've probably gotten Final Jeopardy right about six times in my entire life, but I still play, you know. I still guess. So, and Max is very good at it, because Max is going to, he's in university, and he understands chemistry, and he's done this kinesiology undergrad to, to get to medical school this fall. So a lot of chemistry questions and things like that on Jeopardy. So I went home early one day, and I watched Jeopardy at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and I memorized every answer. So Max walks in, we're going to play Jeopardy. I buzzed in early on every one of them, had all the answers, and the look on his face said it all. It was like all of a sudden I'd become the idiot savant of Jeopardy. And I never told him that story. He's up there working. The, if the lights go off here, you'll know what, that was, what happened. 
But I thought, you know, I should do this every day. It didn't. It was a good idea, but it didn't happen. It, you could tell by the look on Max's face, he knew something was up, as if I'd taken smart pills that afternoon or something. Because <laughs> I, knew, I knew answers to questions that I had never even heard the words before. So, Max, there you go, buddy. <laughs> but we do communicate non-verbally. So much of our communication is just is, it's non-verbal. And part of it is that... So empathy is important. Empathy is important. It gives us a scaffold for our morality. You know, we can identify with people. You know, this idea of the golden rule, we do unto others as we would want others to do unto us. I had that picture out here last week talking about that. But that is really the golden rule of all traditions. And that was just about behavior. It wasn't until the last two or three hundred years we got into this whole thing about the different, the different groups of religious belief. I'm this, you're that. You know, centuries ago it didn't matter. It was really about a code of behavior. But the empathy is so important because without that, then we're just we're operating autonomously and it's so important to, to, to connect. So we come together on Sundays, we connect. We connect with ourselves, we connect with one another, we celebrate life. The, our tradition is one of celebration. And we're agents of change. We had a wonderful speaker at our business breakfast this last week, Diane Young, and her quite a list of credentials, and she did a lovely job Thursday morning. We have our business breakfast, and we invite our members of our business community to come together and share and be supported in spiritual practice to help thrive in their business, because commerce is important, and we want to take this teaching into our work and into our families and into the community in a larger way. And we are agents of change. And one of the things I love what Diane had said was that for all of us, how many people took a shower or took a bath this morning? Anybody besides? Okay. I know the band didn't because they already told me they didn't, but uh, no, they did. But we all do it. You know, most of us do. We take a shower, we do something, and we do it daily. And we do it daily because, typically, because we need to do it daily, or whatever it is, it becomes what, whatever it may be. But for our spiritual practice, it's the same thing. We forget. So we come back together on a Sunday, we forget some of the ideas, we forget some of the opportunities, whatever it may be, and it's okay. We just need to take another spiritual shower. Hmm, yeah, I forgot that. Oh, I forgot who I am. One life, that life is God's life, that life is perfect, that life is my life right now. That was the affirmation I gave you with the, the mala last week. One life, that life is God's life, that life is my life right now. And so it's, we forget that. One of my favorite teachers and probably because he had such a big impact on my life, was a man by the name of John Bradshaw. And probably the reason that I identify with Bradshaw so strongly is he was, uh, he was raised Catholic, and I was as well. And, he, and part of his story, he actually is a Minnesotan. I'm from Minnesota. A lot of similarities. And uh, it, you may have seen him. He's written a number of books. Years ago, I found a book called Homecoming. And in that book, there was a process described about reparenting oneself. And in the reparenting of oneself, the other night at the men's group, Rick, Rick, uh, Dr. Rick Moss came and did the very same exercise with the men about reparenting. Because as men, I mean, let's face it, we have, what do we celebrate as men? We, you know, I mean, and how do we connect as men? The one thing we celebrate, which is very comfortable for us, is sports. Football, hockey, you know, if it was up to the guys in this community, you know, they play hockey 12 months out of the year. And you watch men at the hockey game, and you watch them at a football game. It's okay to celebrate that. You know, it's aggressive, it's competitive, it's all those things that are comfortable. There's, you know, there's a whole list of activities men are comfortable, but it, when it comes to sitting in a room with men and saying, I love you, because Dr. Rick sat us all down the other night, there's about 15 of us, and he said, you know what we really want to do is love one another. We want to love our brothers. We want to be connected to them. And that's empathy. 
at the very beginning, it's empathy. And it's foreign to a lot of, a lot of men because we don't operate at that level. Most of us don't. So I think it's important as a man for me to stand up here and, and, and say, for me, that's just been a way of life for me. And I don't know if my wiring is a bit different, but I just have always felt, you know, and I've had that conversation with a number of men in the community. You know, I've always felt a little bit out of place because I feel more sensitive than others, but you don't want to show that because that's not something that's, that's acceptable in the world. And Bradshaw recommends this, and I think this speaks really clearly to uh, the process. We're doing this spiritual boot camp, and I'm offering it because I, I realize that we all need, we all need to be, be held accountable. I've hired professional coaches to help me. I've hired different people I've partnered with to help me work my spiritual program. I've hired practitioners. I'm still in conversation with prayer partners. I have a lot of things around me to help support me and keep me tracking well. So Bradshaw says there's five stages. And I want to share these five stages and speak about it a little bit. Number one, he says you need to find a mentor to be a role model and change whatever harmful pattern your life is in. Nothing changes until something changes. And we need to look out in the world and find people that can inspire us and stretch us and see the possibility. Because most of us didn't get that. I didn't get that as a kid. You know, I just, it wasn't part of our culture. It wasn't part of my culture. It wasn't the way my mom and dad showed up. And it's not a bad thing. It's just it, the, the culture has shifted and changed. And so it's important, I think, to have some. So for me, most of my teachers in this teaching have been women. A lot of the people that really inspired me have been female, that female energy. And, and it's very interesting because a lot of the, the females that have, have plowed the ground in new thought over the last 50 years in North America are very male, have very male energy in a sense. So it's very interesting because it doesn't matter what your gender is. And, you, and the, the ability to be androgynous, which is what Daniel Pink talks about, it's required for all of us. So the men to move into that, that feeling nature and the women when it's appropriate to move into the more linear structure thing that we, we always sort of defer to men. So finding a mentor is really important, and it can be through books, it can be through classes, it can be through things. And I realized in reading this, when we started to offer this, this spiritual boot camp, or this mental muscle, is what uh, the new book, he reprinted the book, Dr. J or, uh, Reverend James Mellon. But it's important, and I think it's important to engage you know, and, and to really track and be held accountable. The, the second stage is to find a program, a religious community, 12-step group, therapist or therapy group, to help you stop going astray. For me, my first mentor was my 12-step sponsors, that Bradshaw says. But we need that. We need community. I know I need community. You know, I was in and out of this teaching. I kept getting, life kept getting better, and I was working the principles, and then all of a sudden, I'd, oh, great, I got it. I got it knocked. I don't need to go back anymore. I'm done. Never have to go back to church and move the piano once again. Never have to go back and set up all the chairs. Because if you're a physic, you know, it looks like you can carry heavy stuff as soon as you come in the door. They're having you move stuff around. And so... You know, I, I just wanted my life to work. All right, I'll move the piano, but I hope, you know, and, and so work in the principles of the teaching because the teaching works. And we are, as, as, as we work it more and more in our lives, we become that, that catalyst for change. We are the change agents. So in other words, when you leave here, the expectation that I have is that we don't go into any environment embodying the idea of being a victim or being an effect to what's going on there. It's really our opportunity to show up with the consciousness and the clarity that allows and adds to the conversation in a way that perhaps they're not even aware of. But that takes being grounded in the clarity. It takes, and, it takes, and there's skills involved with that that many of us, and I certainly wasn't raised with them, didn't have. Stage three, find a therapist who can guide you through your original pain work, your deep feeling work. When we sat down with Dr. Rick, he did a short process with us, and half the guys in the room are just crying, just sobbing. 
And it was a very sacred, beautiful place. But there's just things there that just want to bubble up because there's things that happen to us as children that we don't get a chance to process because our, our role as a child is just to survive. And so to have the opportunity to sit with other men and just simply let the tears, it's, as Dr. Rick called it, it's a discharge. So when we cry, many of you come in and say, you know, that you know, first four or five or a dozen times I came to the center, I, I just cried and cried and cried. And that's part of just the consciousness that's here. It's the discharge. It's the opening. It's the clearing. It's the, the shedding. And that's a powerful thing. But as men, it can be very uncomfortable. And so it's important, I think, to have that conversation. And, and as women as well. That, that we, but we need to find someone that can help us do that work, I think. I tell you, I, I found this teaching and I worked with, I worked with a, a counselor for a number of years because I needed both. I needed both conversations, and it was a beautiful fit for me. I'm not saying that's everybody's path, but I'm telling you, I watch people do affirmation after affirmation after affirmation after year after year after year, and nothing changes. It's not one thing, like I said last week. It's not just the ionized water that we saw down in San Diego that was going to fix everything. You know, buy the water machine for $2,000, and your health, your health needs are taken care of forever. I wish it was that simple. So we have to do the work, and, that's, and it is work. Byron Katie said it in San Diego. That's why she calls it the work. It's work. It's work. See, I think, you know, like, like marriage. Has anybody ever, here ever been married besides me? I'm on, I had a practice marriage. I warmed up for 18 years. Now I'm in my real marriage. And I learned a lot. I really did. I learned a lot. And, and God bless my first wife, beautiful person. And God bless my second one, another beautiful person. But the point being is that when I was in that first marriage, I couldn't listen. She would come home and complain about her day. Want to hear about how bad my day was? No, 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 no. No, don't want to hear that, don't want to hear that, don't want to hear that. No, 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 no. You know, I couldn't hear it. I couldn't just be there for her to be a sounding board. Because my, the where I was, I had to fix it. And I knew I couldn't fix it. So why even listen to it? Because I, I know I can't fix it. And then I would just get more frustrated. So it was good learning for me. She just needed to talk. I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't hold her accountable. I, and I hadn't done enough of my own work. I hadn't done a, pull enough of my stuff up to just simply say, you know what? It's all going to work out. It's her path. And we were enmeshed. When I was in counseling, she said, you two are enmeshed. I said, what the heck does that mean? We're enmeshed. You're too busy taking care of one another to take care of yourselves. Anybody ever done that? That's a popular idea. It's so much easier to fix the other person than actually do your own work. Well, I love that one. That's easy. In fact, line up, I'll tell you all your problems right now. Just come down the middle aisle here. <laughs> it is. It's much easier to fix other people. So, you know, that was learning for me. That was a, a good learning for me. And the other the thing that, that I, I learned in that is that relationship, you know, I would work, I, I would work a lot of hours. Last, week, last uh, early service, I said I used to work sometimes 16 or 18 hours a week. And, and I said, did I say a week? Yeah, but anyway, but I would be working, I meant today, of course. But then I would come home, and of course, there's no time to have a relationship. But if I got home early enough, you, you're so tired, you, and if the feeling is, maybe you guys can identify with this, or ladies can identify that, but I don't want to work on the relationship. I don't want to plan a date night. I don't want to have a meaningful conversation. That's, I'm tired. I just want to come home and, and just, you know, wind down. And what happens is, it's just like anything. That relationship needs nurturing. It needs attention. It needs conversation. You've got to have this meaningful interaction, or it just doesn't work. And the same with our spiritual practice. So I'm sharing with you some of these things that I think can be valuable. 
because I think that our teaching is a wonderful standalone teaching. We all teach you affirmative prayer, and as you do the affirmative prayer, and you affirm a new idea about yourself, and you'll demonstrate things in your life. And as you grow into that, it's gradual, sequential, inevitable, as I say. It, it, the only reason you won't reach it is because you'll give up on it. But along the way, stuff's going to come up. Those core beliefs about not being good enough, those core beliefs about not being able to have and receive in a bigger way, whatever it may be. I mean, we all share so many of the similar challenges. So as I, my, my experience has been, as I start to affirm a new idea, all the things contrary to that show up in my life. And I'm sort of turning things up. It's what Maria Nemeth calls liftoff. I'm doing guitar lessons with Jordan right now. And it's really, really wonderful. I love it. And it's just so left brain for me right now. It's so mechanical. And the other day, I started to hear some things and play some things in a new way. And he said, you're developing your musical ear. I went, wow. I like that. You're developing your musical ear. So it's developing our spiritual ear. And so I don't think there's a better spiritual foundational piece that we can have in our lives than this one. Because it allows us to grow and change and be who we need to be and who we're called to be. But I just think there's tools along the way that we can use. If a good tool shows up, I'm using it. I don't think ionized water is going to solve any problems for me. And I don't think it's my answer to my health challenges. I just don't. But I mean, if you have a machine at home, God bless you. I wish, it, I wish there were pills I could take that would just do it all. But there aren't. It's work. It's work. That's why they call it work. Stage four, find workshops, books, or a therapist to help you learn the developmental task you did not learn growing up. It was first marriage, 18 years. I used to do this. I was an actor in Hollywood. I was the most amazing person on the planet. I was the only one on the planet. I would go to parties. And you should have heard me talk about myself for three or four hours, nonstop. <laughs> Finally, my wife, we went home one night from a party, and she said, you know, I said, yes, dear. Because we were, now we're having a meaningful conversation because you know, it's going to be about me. <laughs> she said, why don't, you, why don't you try and ask somebody else about themselves sometime? What an idea to actually ask somebody else about themselves. It was, it was like a pivotal moment in my life. Ask other people about themselves. How you doing? What's going on? What's exciting for you? I mean, it, it, it sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Well, it wasn't on my radar screen because I was so needy and so empty and, and so hungry to impress everybody with the, the last audition, the next audition, the agent, the new headshot. I was like, oh my gosh. Bunch of hooey. I mean, I'd love to tell you it wasn't that way, but that's what was happening. And when you're spinning that, that cycle of personality and ego, nothing gets in. Nothing can happen. It's just such a self-serving spin of self being selfish. And I think it's important that you have to be able to develop skills. So that was a skill that I had to develop. And I would t intentionally go to parties and I'd ask people about them. I'd, I'd say, I'm not going to say anything about myself tonight. I'm going to ask everybody about them. And it was just, it was interesting. And you know, it was a room full of actors, so they don't remember. But it, was, it, was, it, it took effort because I didn't get those skills. We weren't allowed, we didn't have meaningful discussion growing up. We just didn't talk in my family. I mean, if you, we did everything but hug. We could kick and slap each other. We could insult each other. We could use sarcasm and insults. That was all good stuff. That's the way we related. But to hug each other? Oh, my gosh. Don't let anybody know we hugged in here. You know. 
And so yeah, to develop those, those, those skills, many of us don't have them. I couldn't, I couldn't, for a long time, when I was struggling, I couldn't verbalize it. I couldn't find the words because I would just get so frustrated and angry. And now the skills. And my first wife said to me, I can't live with somebody like this. You've got to start talking. And I said, you know, you're right. I've got to go find somebody that can help me do that. And I did. Uh, about meaningful things. About how my heart was cracked open or the joy in my life or whatever it may be. I didn't realize at the time that it was going to bring me to this. This is still a surprise to me. But, but I had to learn those things because none of it was modeled for me. And I, I share this with you because I think that that's probably true for a lot of us. And number five, he says, find a spiritual master. It could be your religious founder or some other spiritual master as a mentor for working a spiritual program. Well, we have many, we have many you know, we, we have them on the wall. We can read about their lives. In fact, a young man came up to me at the last service, told me that Gandhi's in, spelled incorrectly, which it is, and we know. I just said, I said, we do that, so make sure new people are paying attention. But the point being is that we, we, we need, we need to, I think that we need to just continue to do the work. I think we need to continue to till the soil, move things around, whatever is important and right for us. That allows us to continue to deepen and grow and to be the most potent and, and agent of change we can possibly be. It's up to us. One of the um, wonderful book called Flow that I'm reading right now, and I, there's some, some qualities in here that I'm going to get into when I get back. We're going to be gone. I'll be gone next week. Uh, to the circle of love. And that's going to be a whole week of being immersed in, in this, the energy that we help generate. It's just an extension of what we do here on Sundays with the music and the connection. But it's a, a wonderful experience. But in, in this book by, this is an amazing name, Mikali Shizen Mikali. So that's his name. And I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it correctly. But uh, it talks about the qualities that, that move us into this state of being. And I'm going to just touch on one of them today because it's, it, it's wonderful stuff and I'll expand on it when I get back. He talks about being unselfconsciously self-assured. Unselfconsciously self-assured. And he said, in a, cutting to the chase here, he said that what they found is with, with, with the survivors of, of things, they've wandered off into the Arctic and they've come back or they were survivors of the concentration camps. Things like that. They never doubted their own resources would be sufficient to allow them to determine their fate. And in that sense, one would call them self-assured. Yet at the same time, their ego seemed curiously absent. They are not self-centered. Their energy is typically not bent on dominating their environment as much as finding a way to function within it harmoniously. These people no longer see themselves in opposition to the environment. As an individual who insists that our goals or my goals have to be met. Intentions take precedent over everything else. Instead, we feel a part of whatever goes on around us. And we try to do our best within the system in which we must operate. Paradoxically, this sense of humility, the recognition that one's goals may have to be subordinated to a greater entity, and, that, and to succeed, one may have to play by a different set of rules from what one would prefer, is a hallmark of strong people. It's flexibility. It's being permeable. It's understanding. That's why we do visioning. What is God's idea here? What wants to happen here? What's the next best thing we can do? And, and so you've got to live in the question. And then it starts showing up. And all of a sudden, the, the vibrancy, what we're called to do as a community, we're doing the Michael Beckwith event. I'm bringing Michael Beckwith to town because I want to market the center. Because I believe that the world needs our teaching. And I believe that you are the ambassadors of that teaching. 
My belief is when you leave here, you go out and make a difference in the world because you're aware and you're awake. You've woken up and you continue to wake up. And, you, and, and as we do that, then we stand in that self-centered assuredness, not out of ego or personality or the, the need to dominate, but to simply from observation and say, how can I serve here? How can I add my gifts to this? And it's a beautiful journey. But it's a, this is a teaching of, of for, for sane individuals. This is a teaching to step into the balance and the harmony that's possible for all of us. And so we're on that journey. And I've watched my life shift and change over the years. It's been powerful and wonderful. I have sat with some beautiful practitioners. I've sat with people that have modeled behavior for me and showed me how to find my voice and showed me how to ask questions and given me the vocabulary. When I find somebody I don't agree with, I just simply say, that doesn't represent my position. But in the past, I say, you're wrong. What does that lead to? Why do I need to make them wrong? It just doesn't represent my position. So if you're looking for my agreement on I'm not going to give it to you. But I wish you well with what you're doing. And whatever comes after that, but it, 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 takes, it takes time to b- develop those skills. 